Well, as you know, it's Easter. If you don't know that it's Easter, I will be shocked. But whether you're here or online, we're glad you're here in some capacity. And we're here to identify and engage in the centrality of Easter. Now, immediately, that takes me to an old Commodore 64, as I'm sure it does you as well. Just out of curiosity, how many of you own some kind of smartphone? Just go ahead and hold your hands up whether you have it with you or not. Most of you do. You realize the technology we have at our disposal, right? How much we have available to us? Now, for those of you who didn't uh, grow up as early as I did, which is probably a great number of you, um, do you know what a Commodore 64 is? Raise your hand if you know what one is. Oh, that's more than I thought. Some of you watched it on like CNN in the 90s or something probably, didn't you? Well, what's interesting is these came out, I'm not even sure it was this particular model, but they came out when I was in, in high school and we, all, we had availability of computer classes. And so one of the classes we had was a basic programming class. And you learned a principle in this programming class called if, then. So it's a very simple one with these computers. You would put in, for example, a number for X or a range for these numbers. Then you would put in a rule of what was to happen. So if X is this, then it played out and it gave you an answer. Then this will be true. You get the idea? So it's if and then. These work together. It's a common logic principle. If this is true, if this is the cause, then this will be the effect. So what follows is not simply corollary that they both happen, but there is a cause and an effect. For example, many of us, in fact, most of us in our nation spend as much money as we make. So that basically means you don't have anything extra. If you spend what you make, you have very little money. True? Now, if you spend more than you make, that's called a debt. And many of us live in that as well. If you spend less money than you make, then you have savings. We see how the if and then works. This, this work, we get it, right? Now, we don't follow it, but we get it. You're like, I know this. It's not how I live. Let's do this with health. Health. If you eat poorly and don't exercise, then there will be more of you than there is today. <laughs> you get how this works, right? If you don't be tapping each other like that's you or that's me, that's not what we're looking for in this. This was not a health, physical health conviction thing. It also is that if you sleep enough and you eat well and you exercise, you will be more healthy than you currently are. You get the principle of if... And then, if this is true, then this will be true. Make sense so far? You tracking with me? Now, I want you to understand this because we're about to talk about the singular event that brings the church together. And so I want you to think of it this way. If the resurrection is true, then what does that mean? If this is true, what's it mean? Because that's what we're going to look at today. We just want to be clear. What does this mean if it's really true that Jesus lived and died and rose again? So with this, we're going to go to a letter that was written to the early church. It was written to a particular church in a city called Corinth, but it's written not just to that church, but it's spread all over the place to many churches, and now we have it today. Written by a guy named Paul. We'll talk a little more about him a little later. The particular chapter, we're going to be looking at two different letters he wrote a little bit through the morning, but this one is considered to be one of the most important lessons or understandings as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. He gives some real clarity looking back. And so we're going to see what he has to say and what might it mean for us. And remember, if this is true, then what does this mean? 
So we begin with chapter 15 where Paul writes to this church. He says, for what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, in case you're not language gurus, first importance means first importance. It's profound that it actually means what it says. It's primary, it's primacy. According to scriptures, he speaks about this, Christ died for our sins. And remember, when he says according to scriptures, he's not talking about all what we call the New Testament. He wrote much of that. He's speaking of the Hebrew Bible, of all that was written well before Jesus would come. He now sees it and says, oh, this is central to what was taught. We just didn't see it. And he goes on, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. In other words, he's saying the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is right there center stage. As people who follow Christ, it's primary. We say it like this around here. We talk about what we call blood issues, pen issues, and pencil issues. What simply that means is a blood issue is something that we would die for. This is non-negotiable. It's the most important thing. Of course, we would die on the hill for this one. A pen issue are things we feel deeply and strongly about. When you write in pen, it's not meant to be taken away. It's important, but it's not that primary level. And pencil means, I think this is true. Don't think it matters that much. Lots of people think lots of things. You tracking? So the resurrection of Jesus, we know what it is, don't we? It's blood. It's center to us. You want to know why the church gets filled on Easter? Because whatever your engagement in faith, you know this day matters. That we understand what we believe about Jesus actually living, actually dying, and actually rising again is center to our faith. Now you're quiet, but I hope you're a bit jacked up by this deal. No question, I had a good chai charger this morning, a couple little extra shots of espresso, I'm wound up. But make no mistake, I'm not wound up by that, I'm wound up by this truth. Oh, man, I live and die for this. I believe this is true. I want you to see how Paul goes on, and make no mistake, he doesn't say, I decided it, he says, I received this, and I passed it on. Now he's gonna go further to explain what he means. After he gives a central piece, he goes, and that he appeared, meaning Jesus, after his resurrection to Cephas, who's also known as Peter, and then to the 12, meaning his closest followers. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He doesn't mean narcolepsy here. He actually means they died in case you're not clear on that. He then appeared to James, another follower, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, what I want you to understand about the resurrection is it's about Jesus becoming known and seen. Appeared in the Greek language means to be seen. It's actually used as a clarifying of a new way of understanding. It's used to describe skins on a wine that when you get new skin and you wash it and it's stretched the way it's supposed to be, it can be placed on and nothing can stop it. It's new and it's better and it's unbreakable. I want you to get that picture. It's about Jesus revealing himself. And there are some really interesting parts in this when I consider all the questions that get brought up. So, so I thought to myself, why do I believe this? What's so significant about this? Why would I read these pieces and be taken in on my own and all these beautiful things? 
Now, I want you to see this from Paul's point of view to begin with. Paul is a religious Jewish leader. He's become a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means there are several, seven levels of accomplishment to become this religious person. He's reached the highest level of Phariseeism, which means he understands all of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, like nobody back and forward. He also, because he was born in this most Western place as a Roman citizen, naturally, he has great understanding of the Western arguments and the ways of thinking logically and rationally. So Paul, who's originally named Saul, when he hears about this resurrection, thinks it's destructive to the Jewish church. He goes around in what he believes is righteous anger and begins to take out these early Christians. He's there when a guy named Stephen is stoned to death and killed and endorses it. He hauls off these early Christ followers to prison and on one of his treks to go take some more people out, he has this dramatic revelation where the light shines on him from heaven. He's blinded. It tells us the people around him don't know all that's going on. They're not privy to everything. And he hears the very voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? What ensues is scales coming off of his eyes and reality that Jesus appeared to him, revealed himself. So Paul, from Saul, who he becomes, now says, I believe it because I've seen it. Do you get the picture? Now, I want you to understand, too, there, for those of you who have reasonable, rational arguments, there are some good things to question in here. One of them is we often think of the resurrection as this plot, if you're skeptical, that a bunch of people got together and made the story up. I just want to offer you a couple of things to think about if you have that kind of skepticism. One of them is, if that's true, why did no one ever call it that? Isn't it amazing that all these early followers would go to such lengths even to die if it was a fake story? And let me take you even farther. When Paul writes this, he says many of these people are still living. How'd you like to tell a story that other people would have to validate and you hope they're gonna say the same thing? Just interesting pieces to consider. And as I thought about this, I thought about why do I believe this? Why does it follow in my own life? And it's a fascinating piece as a pastor you know that when people have questions and doubt, and when you talk to them, many of you, rather than saying, how can I help, go, let me have you meet with Pete. <laughs> I'm not suggesting this is a good strategy, by the way. But it's interesting, I've met with a lot of people over the years with a lot of questions. And I have to tell you, one of the reasons I believe more in the resurrection is, I get to walk through questions with people. I get to watch their doubt. We get to reasonably talk about it. Everything from science to why would Christianity be anything different than other faiths to all sorts of other questions about the injustices in the church and the oppression in the church. And every time I interact, I love learning from the questions people have and every time Jesus shows up. Whew, I gotta tell you, it's pretty sweet. This is not caffeine. I'm just telling you, it's pretty sweet. Now, it's interesting to me, too, as I consider in my own life, I ask questions, how has he appeared to me? How have I experienced the presence of God? I don't mean visibly seeing Jesus, but appearing means knowing his presence is there. And it's interesting, I started thinking through those great areas where you go, this is a great, meaningful, powerful moment. Like, I've had those. I remember when I was in college, we were up with a group of friends at, in Alpena at this place. There's Long Lake up there, and the, the, the waters are really tumultuously going. And I was going through a time where I was really questioning and struggling. Are you there, Jesus? How are you going to help me? And this story came to mind. It was before people were write about, writing about it and making it 
kind of a popular idea, but I literally sensed the Lord say, listen, Peter walked on the water because he looked at me. Every time he looked down at his circumstances, he fell. And all I heard was, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And you know what? Following that has been huge because I found there's times God meets me profoundly. Jane and I coming here was a very miraculous event. We both said no. We both walked away. And independently, God said to both of us, you shut a door I didn't want you to. He even told her to come ask me. I was not happy. I could not deny that God was moving. And boy, has it turned out to be a joyful reality for me. Those are powerful moments. But there's the little things that happen in life. I remember when our kids were little and we began to just explore praying for healing. We couldn't manufacture it. We thought we were gonna pray more. And we started seeing little things happen around our home. But you know what most affected me? My kids started praying for each other. Kids don't do things unless they think it's real. And I started to see things in them that said they see something I even question. And it affected me. I think over all the years that I've interacted with people, all the journeys I've seen, people whose lives were broken and in despair, that there is no explanation for transformation except what Jesus did at the resurrection somehow changed their lives. Whew, man, it affects you when you see that. I sit down with people and they tell me the messes they're in and I have no wisdom to give. I don't know what to tell them. Yet somehow in the midst of that, I get a prompting or a thought. And as God gives it, I watch life get transformed. And I go, that reminds me it's true. From miraculous to mundane, we all can see that God moves. And make no mistake, he wants to speak to every single one of us. He is no respecter of persons and gives no favoritism. He loves and longs for it with all of us. I want you to get a picture that this is about real encounter and real relationship, not about a principle, do we believe it or not, but a reality, did it happen? And make no mistake, what Paul's saying is, he shows up. Now he continues in explaining what this means. Before he gets to this point, he actually then walks through in a series of verses this idea that if Jesus didn't rise, our faith is meaningless. In other words, it's not just a nice principle or an analogy. If he really didn't do it, the very things we claim are central don't matter and didn't happen. And then he comes back to it. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because this idea of first fruits is what I think is brilliant, creative, and speaks of God's amazing uniqueness and how he moves in what we call kairos, which means a very distinct appointed time. There are three feasts that go on the week of Holy Week for the Jewish life, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. We talked about Passover for those of you who are here on Thursday night. The night Jesus is to be betrayed, they celebrate this feast where what they recognize is God in the midst of their bondage for centuries in Egypt God basically says to them, offer this lamb, put it on the the blood on the doorposts of your houses. My spirit will pass over those and save you and others will be taken and you will then be freed. In other words, it's a picture. It happened, but it's a picture of what he's going to do. Make no mistake, every feast that God gives to Israel, Jesus fulfills or will fulfill. So what happened was they're in bondage to slavery Through the sacrifice, they're freed, walk through these waters to new life and a new way of living. Jesus comes. One of the first things that John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, he becomes the sacrifice for all of our mess. 
And it moves us, as Paul says, from death to life. Now, whatever you think, you gotta admit, that's a pretty brilliant, amazing thing that God timed it out just perfectly on just the right day in just the right way to make a new thing out of something old. Whew! Telling you, not caffeine. Next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On that day, on what we know as Good Friday, the people of Israel were to be reminded they moved in haste, but they also were to remove all the leaven from their homes. Leaven was this sour piece of the bread that caused it to rise, caused it to be puffed up, caused pride. Jesus is completely free of leaven. It refers to him as this unleavened bread that his very life is lived without sin. Imagine we go from the feast of Passover where the lamb's gonna be offered to the feast of unleavened bread where sin should be removed and that is who God comes to be. It's getting better. Let me take you to Sunday. The first day of the week after Passover, they're to offer the feast of first fruits. It means they take the early part of the harvest and they give it back to God as a wave offering. Thank you for what you've done. But you know what it always means? There is more coming. If there is a first fruit, there is more fruit. This is what I want us to understand. Jesus rising doesn't just mean he rose. It means we will. It means there is new life coming. And this has great and beautiful implications for us. We tend to think about it in terms of what it means in the long term. We speak of when we die because of this forgiveness, we will one day rise. We will be with God and he will eventually give us new bodies. And that's really important. We should celebrate that. That's the long look at what this means. If Jesus rose, then it means someday we can be with him forever. But did you know there's more? I feel like a used car salesman. I feel like some kind of ad. There's more. This is not the end. There's more coming. But the more is really cool and really good. Listen to how he continues to speak about it and something different that's coming. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, all that's brought us death, when Christ rises and the way he rises and the truth of it means you and I do not have to end with death. I think about the reality. I have sat with so many people. It's both a sacred thing and a sad thing as you live as a pastor for years. You sit with a lot of people as they prepare to leave. I mean, I can tell you what it's like when someone knows and feels the presence of God as they're moving from one life to the next. Oh, it just reminds me. And as I get older, more of my loved ones are there. I go, it kind of moves our heart more to be with God eventually. I love how Paul says it. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, but it's better for you that I remain. And the reason he says that is, there's still more than simply what happens when we die. There's something now. Let me take you to his second letter and what he has to say about this. He says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. <laughs> Did you know that Christ's resurrection means he wants to make you new? We have a, a little phrase we use around here. You might have even seen it when you saw it when you drove in. It says, together, because life is messy. It's the idea that you know every one of us is a mess, don't you? In case you don't, you are, and we are, we all are. 
It's interesting, you know, some of us have more for us, some of us look better in it, but guess what? Every one of us has a mess, have things that break us and mess over our lives. I've seen it all through life. The beautiful thing is Jesus' resurrection actually means he wants to change your life and make it new. When I think of the friends I have, and I've watched people go from losing everything to having a new hope they never imagined. When I see brokenness turn to new life, when I see great and small, all that's happened and people go, you know what, there's something more than this. And see what God can do. I go, that's what Paul's talking about. You see, if the resurrection's true, and we believe it is, then guess what? God wants to make you new. You are so quiet. It should not be a quiet thing. I'm not trying to manufacture this deal, but it's pretty amazing. Have you ever considered, and maybe it's how you see yourself, maybe it's how you see others, no one is beyond God's redemptive changing ways. No one. Oh, for many of us, it just brings hope inside. For some of us, we've got to start looking at people differently. Not the way we are. Paul goes on to explain this in greater detail. All of this is from God. You want to know what God did? He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the very ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to this very same message of reconciliation. We, uh, we have a mission around here that we say is to be radically loving and growing together in Christ. And very simply what it means is we are discovering, not one event, but we continue to discover how much Jesus loves us through his death and resurrection and his very presence in our lives. And the more we discover it, the more we understand to help others discover it. It's a simple idea. He helps us be made new and he wants us to help others to discover that too. He doesn't just say, I'll meet you here. Here's the mess. Enjoy the mess. He says, I'm going to actually change you. And that's what we're called to be a part of. We call ourselves all shores because we believe God meets us on the shores of our brokenness and mess and changes us so that we'll meet others on the shores of their brokenness and mess. Paul goes on to speak of this in even more detail. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ah, oh, man, I love that. You know there's a lot of bad news going on around today. I don't know where you get your news. Maybe you watch it on TV. Maybe you read it in a paper. Maybe you get it through Twitter or some other social media. Do you read a lot of bad news? I'm assuming Yes. Did you know you're the answer to it? I want you to hear this. Did you know you're the answer to the bad news? It's pretty cool. God changes you and makes you new and then says, guess what? You're my hands and feet. Go help others discover this. Go be the hope in a broken and messed up world. You realize, we live in West Michigan. You understand we're not an epicenter of anything, right? I mean, I know people like to vacation around us, but nobody in global settings going, oh, Spring Lake, uh, Grand Haven, Muskegon, Coopersville. That's a key area. Did you know God is? Do you know God looks at where we are and he goes, you are exactly where I want you to be. Let me change you and let me give you a new mission. And it's better than any mission you have in your life. 
I've got more for you to change the world than your comfort, than kind of life going without incident or problem, than your own establishment of your own identity and your own role. Be part of what I'm doing to change the world. It's better. That's what he says to us. It's been interesting. I think about how many people I interact with in our church and how I see this lived out day after day. Uh, recently, I, I did a funeral for one of our older saints that had passed away. Uh, her name's Pat Jonas. Pat died. She would be 87 this year. The last year of her life, Don, her husband, walked with her. Probably the last 14 months, she really, her mind slowly left. She had some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's. And he was with her every minute of every day for 14 months. I think God was so, so blown away by how Don loved his wife where no one saw it. In a place that was unseen, I think God said, you are my child and you get my mission. You are bringing hope and reconciliation in the midst of pain and suffering. Way to go, Don. But I also want you to hear a little bit of Pat's story. I had the privilege uh, of getting a letter from her that she, she didn't write, but the family gave to me. She'd written some years ago. It's her very testimony. And just two little snippets I want you to hear from her. She shares in her story how she had six very close family die in a matter of a few years. Both her parents, two sets of grandparents, all gone in a very short time. She was just broken and aching. And she would say, you know, I was, I was seeking to follow God. In fact, she even tells in that era while she's struggling she said we'd go to church and I'd, just, I'd cry the whole time. I'd come home angry. And my whole family would say, man, if you're gonna be like this, please, let's not go. It was hard. Now, in the midst of all of that, somewhere, she tells about a story of a bike ride one day. And she said, on that day, on my bike ride, I just knew God was inviting me into relationship, making real his resurrection. I went from knowing about him to following him. Now, even in that moment, in the good of her discovering it, she was not getting the whole picture. She just, it put her on this tilt to want to try and change everyone around her, but she was still hurt and broken and angry. And she writes this about this era. I finally realized that I had to let the Lord change me first. And then the Christ in me would show. As it was just then, it was just bitterness that showed. And then in describing the era, she said, the Lord has been so good to me and so patient. He began to change her and meet her in her pain and her brokenness and began to heal her and help her be more loving to the people around that she would now have new mission. She shares one final story that I love. She uh, had a hearing problem that had come up some years before, had lost much of her hearing and had hearing aids. She tells of a particular day when she just kind of sensed like a prompting, like just a thought come in her mind. The Lord said to her, I'm gonna heal your hearing. She didn't know what that meant or how it meant, but she was confident. Her brother soon after that entered and literally said, she'd had this problem for years. She doesn't know why. He just said, I want to pray for healing for your hearing. He prayed over her and he said, take the hearing aids out. She took it out and she said, for the first time in years, I heard a clock ticking. Just a little kiss from God. I'm here. I love you. Just want you to know I'm here. You want to know what she did with that? She found someone that needed hearing aids and gave them to this person. The person asked why she would give them to him without any payment, and she just shared her story. Made new, making new. One little picture of what God wants to do in and through all of us that beautifully 
wants to change the world. You see, Jesus rose to give you new life and he rose to give you new mission. You wanna ask if it's true? Oh, you bet it's true. And I gotta tell you, if it's true, then God has new life for you and new mission for you. Something beautiful and profound. I, I do want to pray for us and I want to offer ability to respond here. And I want you to consider this in different groups. Some of you are here today, you're watching online and you're just saying, I have a lot of doubts, a lot of questions. We are so glad you're here. I'm not saying I even had to convince you today. It's not my job, but man, I want to know you. We want to walk with you in the doubts. I'm going to do an evening here at this campus at 7.30 on the 29th where I'll have time with anybody who has questions that you want to talk about them. I'll just hang out. We'll interact because I love what God does in our questioning. If you have that, there'll be a place to check that. I'll describe it a little later. I think there's some of you here that you'd go, you know what? I have doubts, but I really buy this thing. And make no mistake, you'll never answer all your questions. After Jesus rises from the dead, it tells us his disciples are standing on a mountain worshiping him, and it says this phrase, but some doubted. They are looking at him and still doubting. You understand that's okay, right? One of his followers, Thomas, actually sees him and says, I gotta, I gotta touch the holes. I gotta know it's real. It's okay to have some doubts, but many of you here go, I don't have that much. I need to move ahead. And I would say, don't ask, I gotta figure it all out. Just say, why not? And then for others of us who would say we follow Christ, I would love for today you go, I actually believe this resurrection and I believe God wants to make me new. And I think God has a better mission for me. Wherever you are, my prayer has been that God will bring power and purpose and move you in some way towards him. Let me ask you to close your eyes. We're gonna pray and I wanna guide you through some specific aspects of this. Lord, I pray for any here today who have lots of questions and doubt. I pray you will meet them in that and they will take some step towards you to answer them, not just sit in them. So Lord, you know what I'm offering. If they're to be a part of that, let them be. If there's others you wanna put around them, do that. But help them move in some way in their doubt towards you or towards answering the things they question. God, I pray for those today who, while they have doubts, they, they believe, inside they believe you actually lived, died, and rose again. Let those little doubts just fall away and them not have to say it has to be everything perfect. But God, help them to move ahead and say, I seek your forgiveness and I want your new life and your spirit in my life. You, if you're that's you today, pray that even now. God, forgive me my sins. I believe you lived and died and rose again. And I want to follow you. Fill me with your spirit. And then finally, God, I pray for the rest of us. I pray somehow we will be inspired and ignited in new ways to discover the truth that because this resurrection is true, you are making us new and giving us new mission. Fill us freshly, change us dramatically, and help us to see greater things you have us to do to reach others. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.